This conversation was recorded live on stage at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Festival of Dangerous Ideas, a weekend of challenging, inspiring and robust discussions with powerful speakers from around the world. Good afternoon to you all. Thank you very much for being here. Terrific occasion, great crowd, but of course, fabulous speaker. I'm Andrew West, I'm, uh, I work for Radio National, and I am as excited as I think you will be to hear Professor A.C. Grayling. A.C. Grayling is the Professor of Philosophy, and he's also the Master of the New College of Humanities in London. That was an institution that A.C. himself set up to really elevate the discussion of social sciences and the humanities in an age when uh, social science and the humanities were under attack in many respects, under attack from British government cuts, under attack from a walking away, a public walking away in some sense from the importance of those critical subjects. So he took it upon himself to establish what has become one of the fastest growing and most successful new colleges in the UK. Now, AC Grayling is pretty much a serial visitor to Australia. Uh, many of you will know him from his appearances on the ABC, on, uh, on uh, Q&A, and of course on radio. But he is a prolific author and a prolific contributor to the public debate in the UK. His most recent books are Towards the Light, The Liberty, uh, Liberty in the Age of Terror, and The God Argument. But today, and there'll be copies of his book available, A.C. Grayling is going to be discussing his new book, The Age of Genius, the, seventh, uh, the 17th century and the birth of the modern mind. Would you please join me in making welcome Professor A.C. Grayling. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed. Well, as you see, my talk is entitled The Closing of the Modern Mind, and I thought we might creep up on that topic a bit by discussing first the opening of the modern mind, or when the modern mind really came to birth. And my great claim is that the 17th century is the moment in history when that happened. And that's the claim I'd like to substantiate for you. People asked me when I was writing this book what I was writing, and I said, I'm writing an intellectual history of the 17th century, and they all assumed that this was a, an attack on insomnia. Uh, but actually, it is such a fascinating subject and so absorbing that the minute that one gets into it, one is carried away by enthusiasm for uh, a subject which is actually complex, but also um, vital. It has in it all sorts of lessons for our own time, too. So to explain the motivation for writing this, I might mention that uh, uh, I'd written a couple of other things uh, beforehand which involved travelling mentally through the 17th century. Talking, for example, in a book I did a few years ago about the concept of liberty, of how uh, this concept arose at the beginning of the modern period with the Reformation, the idea of liberty of conscience in the theological sense. And that idea, of course, immediately, very rapidly, spilled over into the idea of liberty of thought and inquiry. And that was an important moment in the origin of the um, natural sciences in the 16th and especially the 17th century, and in the philosophical revolution of the 17th century. It was also, of course, part of the atmosphere in which the tremendous outpouring of genius in literature and in the fine arts occurred in that period too, in the very late Renaissance. 
So the um, uh, hint was uh, offered me as I wrote on that subject that there was something rather special about this time. And then I wrote uh, a biography of René Descartes. And everybody's heard of René Descartes because everybody knows his slogan, I drink, therefore I am. It's on every pub wall in the, in the world, indeed. So, so people have heard of him. And he was a, a, an important figure in the, this creation of the new way of looking at the universe, which I describe as the birth of the modern mind, in a way that I'll explain in a little while. And indeed, there were other uh, big hints that this was a very important time. I've written a bit about uh, John Locke, the philosopher whose work, especially in political theory, especially his second treatise uh, on government, turned out to be of immense importance to the thinking of the 18th century Enlightenment. So I thought to myself, well, it's pretty obvious that there is something special going on in this time, and one really needs to look at it in order to understand why. And a very, very quick way of dramatizing the point is to um, just remind you of the, of the following considerations. Imagine yourself walking out of doors on a clear night in the year 1600 and looking up at the heavens. What would you see? You would see these beautiful sparkling dots of light set in the ceiling of heaven, majestically revolving around the earth, around you. You were in a kind of big planetarium and it had all been built for your benefit. The great light of the sun, the lesser, lesser light of the moon, and these little diamonds twinkling in the sky, they'd been put there by the creator for your benefit. Indeed, you are not only at the center of creation, but at its pinnacle in material terms anyway, because of course, you're much more special than the dogs and cats and the rats and mice. So you are at the center and at the pinnacle, and it all exists for you. That makes you of cosmic significance. A hundred years later, in the year 1700, somebody stepping out of doors on a clear night and looking up at the sky would have seen exactly the same things, the moon and the twinkling stars, but would have interpreted them in an utterly different way. Instead of seeing uh, these bodies embedded in the crystalline spheres and revolving around the earth, such a person would see immense, vast distances. That these little twinkling dots of light are in fact suns like our own, or even indeed collections of hundreds of millions of suns like our own. So far away, unimaginably, that it's impossible almost to imagine the distances that lie between the observing eye and the object of, of that act of vision. And the consequence of this different perspective on the universe for thinking about us is, among other things, that we are not of cosmic significance. We are not at the center and the pinnacle of things. That we occupy a very, very different place in the universe and the great narrative of its history. We are a speck on a speck in a great, great, great abyss of space and time. Utterly different view. Now, imagine living through that change of perspective. Imagine thinking that as you looked up at the sky, you were seeing something in your locality, this, this set of, of uh, heavenly objects, not very far away and existing for your benefit. And then imagine suddenly seeing them flee into infinities of space, changing completely who and what you are in the universe. Well, that is what happened in the 17th century.
And along with it, along with this dramatic change of perspective, went many other changes of perspective. Let me give you an example. In that same year, 1600, Giordano Bruno was burned at the stake in the Campo dei Fiori in Rome for having, among other things, publicly avowed his belief that the Copernican view, which puts the sun at the center of the universe, not the earth, was literally correct. So he was uh, arrested and he was charged with uh, heresy, with impiety, because in accepting the Copernican view, he naturally accepted some of the consequences of it for how we think about matters of religion and about uh, human beings. And so he was killed for thinking these new thoughts, for being one of the very first among those who, who publicly committed themselves to that new view of the universe. In 1619, in Toulouse, in France, Cesare Vanini was burned at the stake for the same reason. Uh, Vanini had said not only was Copernicus right about the structure of the universe, but that if you took seriously the implications of what he said, you would see that almost everything else about the great orthodoxies of thought that people were expected to accept, principally by the church, could not possibly be right. Because if scripture was so wrong about the origin and nature of the universe, it must be wrong about a lot of other things too. He was burned at the stake. Now just a few years before he was uh, put on trial by the Inquisition, a monk called Foscarini wrote to the great Cardinal Bellarmine, who was the head of the Holy Office, which is the, the name given to the Inquisition in the Vatican. And he said to him, look, you know, in recent years, uh, with the invention of the telescope and the publication by Galileo of his little book, uh, The Starry Messenger, we now know that um, there are some serious questions to be raised about the picture of the universe given in Scripture. Surely we, meaning the church, should uh, begin to think a bit about this and to see whether we aren't wrong in the way we uh, ask people to view the universe. Cardinal Bellamine wrote back to him, using a very chilling phrase. He said to him, in your prudence, it's a very scary three words when you consider what it meant, in your prudence, don't forget what it says in Psalm 104, that he hath laid the foundations of the earth that they may not be moved forever. The earth is motionless at the center of the universe. Think about Joshua outside the walls of Jericho who made the sun stand still for 24 hours in the heavens. Think of what the church fathers said and their writings about what we are to believe about the structure of the universe. So in your prudence, don't try this on. Now, of course, in the early 1630s, Galileo was put on trial for publishing his book, The Dialogue of the Two World Systems, in which he took the side of the Copernican view He'd been warned not to on a couple of occasions before by the Vatican. Now he had published this book. He was arrested, taken to Rome, put on trial, and he was forced, in order to save his life, to recant. He had to say, the world, the earth, doesn't move. Now, of course, it's a very sad reflection to think that the earth never moved for Galileo. But on his way out of the courtroom, he did say to somebody as he passed by, but it does. Well, he saved his life, and he was kept under house arrest for the rest of, of his life, and able to do more valuable work. But that actually was the last throw of the dice by the church, and trying to resist, as King Canute is said to have tried to resist the oncoming tides, <laughs> trying to resist this 
tsunami of new ideas, of new ways of seeing the universe and thinking about it. And the church, and this of course is the Church of Rome, was dead set on keeping hold of the, the mind of Europe and not allowing these new ideas to become influential. <coughs> Excuse me. Here's another example of how dramatically uh, minds were changing in the 17th century. In 1606, Shakespeare had a play premiered in the Banqueting Hall at Whitehall in London. Banqueting Hall, beautiful uh, Renaissance neoclassical building, still stands, of course. And uh, in it, this play, it's known to thespians as the Scottish play, uh, was, was put on for the benefit of James I and VI and his court. And it was a very, very tropical play because less than nine months before, an attempt had been made by a bunch of religious terrorists to blow up King James and his court in the Palace of Westminster, Guy Fawkes, on the 5th of November, 1605. And so this, was a, this play, the Scottish play, of course, is about uh, the murder of a king, the murder of King Duncan. And the point that the play was making was that to kill a king is not merely a crime. It's actually a blasphemy, a sacrilege, because a king rules by divine right. A king is, if you like, the regent of the deity on earth. And therefore, to kill a king is to commit a metaphysical crime. It upends the order of things, the right order of things. Remember, it says in the play, the horses will eat one another in the stables, the graves will open and the, the souls of the dead will come out and twitter and squeak like bats in the streets as they did when Caesar was murdered. The owl will fall on the falcon, not the other way around. So the whole order of nature would be upended. This is a terrible thing to kill a king. And therefore the, the attempted crime by Guy Fawkes was regarded as a very terrible thing, the attempted murder of the king and his court. So that was 1606, that famous play, premised on that idea. 43 years later, in 1649, from the very same building, the Banqueting Hall in Whitehall, stepped Charles I onto a scaffolding where he had his head chopped off. By the way, Charles I must have been the first hipster. He put his little beard over the edge of the scaffolding block saying it had done no harm, so he didn't see why it should be chopped off. Well, there must have been some people in the crowd that witnessed the execution of Charles I who were also present at the premiere of Macbeth. And yet in that one generation, 43 years, between 1606 and 1649, the idea of killing a king, of executing a king, had come to be acceptable. That parliament, that the people through parliament were able to assert their sovereignty over the life of a sovereign. Now that is a dramatic change of mind, a dramatic change of perspective that goes along with all the other dramatic changes of perspective in the 17th century. And what is even more surprising in a way is you'll be aware of the fact that the 17th century was a time in Europe of the most tremendous tumult. It was a century in which there were only three years when there was no actual fighting between armies somewhere in Europe. And at the very heart of the century was the most devastating and the most destructive war that Europe had ever seen to that date, the Thirty Years' War. Began in 1618, ended with the Treaties of Westphalia in 1648. And during those 30 years, 30 long, arduous years, armies of many, many 
different players, the French army, the army of the Holy Roman Empire, the army of the Catholic League, the army of Sweden, the army of Saxony, the army of Brandenburg, the Hungarians. These armies swept back and forth, back and forth, back and forth across Europe, devastating it, burning towns and cities to the ground, committing the most appalling atrocities. Think of the sack of Magdeburg. 1631, when 30,000 people were killed and the city razed to the ground. There were devastations enacted on the agriculture of Europe. It's said that one out of every three German-speaking people of the continent died either directly or indirectly because of that war, and some parts of Europe took nearly two centuries to recover from it. It was a really dreadful, terrible time. And yet against the background of this, against the background of a century of sometimes very vicious conflict, there was this great efflorescence of genius, the rise of science, the philosophical revolution, literary works of eternal value, from Shakespeare and Milton right the way through Racine and others in France. The, the century is a century rich, really rich in genius. What explains that fact? Is there a connection between these two considerations? Well, if any of you have been watching the uh, Olympics just recently, you would have noticed that high jumpers and pole jumpers and long jumpers have to take a bit of a run-up to their subject. So in order to understand the 17th century, you have to take a bit of a run-up to it, <coughs> really, once you go back to the Big Bang. But I'll just go back to 1492. <coughs> 1492, you may remember, was the year in which Columbus sailed the ocean blue. And, no doubt, much to the surprise of the people who lived there, discovered America. <laughs> it was also the year in which the Catholic monarchs, Isabel and Ferdinand of Spain, expelled the Moors and the Jews. But in that year, another thing happened which was of, of real significance, although the significance itself only became apparent over the, the next few decades. And this was the publication of a little book by a, an Italian scholar called Leone Cini. And the little book was called De Erroribus Pliny, which means On the Errors of Pliny. Now, as you know, Pliny the Elder, very early in the first millennium of the Common Era, had um, produced a great encyclopedic work called The Natural History, in which he attempted to embrace and synopticize all the knowledge that was then known. It's a book which still retains some interest. For example, in Book 36 of the Natural History, we are told that Apelles, the greatest painter of ancient times, was able, as Pliny says, to command the wealth of a small town for a single painting. Just shows you plus a change. Art has always been expensive. But there were so many things in, in uh, the, this work by uh, Pliny that Leonicini, as he, was, as he was going through it very carefully in order to make a new edition of it, in fact, he was making an edition of it to be printed just a few decades before this time the printing press had been invented, Gutenberg, and immediately had uh, um, uh, spread itself to all the major cities and some of the lesser cities of Europe, printing presses sprang up everywhere and literally tens of thousands of books and pamphlets were pouring from these presses. And so, as you know, the Renaissance was a period of great rediscovery of classical literature, classical uh, ways of looking at things. And so these uh, um, texts of, of antiquity were being edited and, and published in large numbers. And Leonicini was making an edition of Pliny for this purpose. 
he discovered many mistakes in it. Of course, he, he thought, rightly in some cases, that these mistakes had been introduced by scribes making copies of manuscript versions of the uh, natural history. But then he noticed that some of the mistakes could not be attributed just to scribal error, but they must have been the result of misunderstandings or ignorance on the part of Pliny. Perfectly understandable ignorance because there were plenty of things he could not have known. Now, the importance of this discovery by Leonicini is this, that there had been a long-standing tradition of thinking of ancient times as a golden age, since when everything had been in decline, everything had got worse. The golden age saw people of great wisdom and understanding, giants of both mental and physical stature, and that the human species had just got worse and worse as things had gone by, and... Uh, Time had gone by, and so uh, we were much lesser uh, people than they were. Now, this, of course, is a generalization to history of what happens in our own personal lives. You know, when we're little, we don't pay tax. People buy us ice creams. Everything's fine. When we grow up, we do pay tax, and nobody buys us ice creams. We have to buy our own. So, of course, things have got worse. So, we attribute this trend to the whole of history. <laughs> but Leonicini noticed that this couldn't be quite right, because if there were things that the moderns, as he would have thought of himself, knew and could do that the ancients couldn't, that in fact he could see further than Pliny could see, then this idea of a declension from a golden age really didn't hold water. Now, not very long after Leonicini published his book, as you may remember, uh, Martin Luther nailed his theses to the church door at Wittenberg, thus setting spark to the tinder, which resulted in the Reformation, the Protestant Reformation. One of the many, many things that uh, Luther was protesting about, of course, was um, what the church, then the church, became the Roman Catholic Church, was doing in order to raise money to build its beautiful Basilica of St. Peter's in Rome. It was um, um, raising money by um, selling people time off in hell. It's quite true, the sale of indulgences. You pay a sum of money, you have a couple of million years off in purgatory. You pay even more money, you have even more million years off in purgatory. This is a really, really good uh, uh, technique for raising funds. Some of you here may, may remember Bernie Madoff, he of the Ponzi scheme, whose big mistake was not to take a leaf out of the church's book. His mistake was to promise returns in this life. <laughs> and this is why he was caught out. So, of course, Luther spotted that this was the most tremendous scam, and he protested against it, that and other things. So the, the Reformation got going, and as is the case with uh, the Protestant communities of Christendom, um, it, uh, they immediately began to vociferate. You know, I don't know whether you know this uh, um, interesting fact, but in the United States of America, there are over 20,000 Protestant denominations, because Protestants can't agree with one another, for the very good reason that um, the central tenet of Protestantism is liberty of conscience in matters of religion. The um, permission, the license that we take as Protestants to think for ourselves in matters of theology. So, of course, consequently, you get uh, the phenomenon that we see in Scotland, for example, uh, the Church of Scotland, and then the breakaway group, the Free Church of Scotland, and then the breakaway group from that, the We Free Church of Scotland. 
and then the breakaway group from that, the We, We, Free Church of Scotland, and so it goes on. And so this is what happened even in the 16th century, in the immediate aftermath of Luther. We had Zwingli, we had Calvin, and we had others, and so the Protestant communions um, themselves were at odds with one another. Truth is, they hated one another much more than they hated the Catholics, uh, and that was the cause of some problem in the 16th and 17th century. But one of the immediate consequences of the Reformation was that in those parts of Europe, principally the northern and some parts of the western regions of Europe, where Protestantism took hold, and where therefore there was no longer a powerfully dominating church, like the Church of Rome, in its own territories was, which could exert control over what people were allowed to think, what they were allowed to inquire into, and if they were unorthodox in any way, could be put to death for it. In the Protestant parts of Europe, the preachers and the ministers didn't have that power. And also, they had given the game away by saying that you should think for yourself. Of course, they meant in matters of religion. Although, as it happened, one of the really key moments in this whole process was a very big mistake made by Calvin. Now, as you know, in those days, people were mad keen, among Renaissance scholars especially, to really become masters of the classical tongues. Latin, everybody tremendously admired. Cicero, of course, was a great model of Latin prose, but also to uh, learn classical Greek and Koine Greek. And Koine Greek is the language in which the New Testament is written. And there was a young scholar in Spain, he was a civil servant in the government of the Spanish Habsburgs, taught himself Koine Greek, read the scriptures, and found to his surprise that there is no scriptural basis whatever for the doctrine of the Trinity. Trinity being God in three persons, a sort of miraculous kind of arithmetic. And he, he saw that there was no, no basis for this at all. And so he wrote a book uh, advancing a Unitarian view of uh, the deity. Now, he wasn't by a long chalk the first person ever to be Unitarian. As you know, the Hussites in Bohemia had been Unitarians um, long before, but they lived before the printing press, which is why their ideas didn't get disseminated as Servetus's did, or indeed as Luther's did, because there had been uh, protesters against the church before Luther also. But again, the printing press made the difference. Now, Servetus sent a copy of his book to Calvin, Calvin had already written his great work of theology, The Institutes, and he was irritated by this little book that Servetus sent him. Surely Servetus should have just read The Institutes and got it right from the start. So he didn't reply personally to Servetus, he just sent him a fresh copy of The Institutes. <laughs> and that irritated Servetus in his turn. So he wrote a lot of rude comments in the margins of Calvin's book and posted it back. Well, this was a very bad move because uh, Calvin was extremely uh, angry as a result and uh, said to a friend, if this man set, sets foot in Geneva, if he ever comes to Geneva, he won't leave it alive. And alas, Servetus made the terrible mistake of going to Geneva. He was arrested, he was tried as a heretic, and he was burned at the stake. One of the very few people to be burned at the stake by a Protestant church. Uh, for heresy. Well, Calvin had a friend, uh, or a, a former friend, a man called Sebastian Castellio, who was without peer in his own age at writing this very, very beautiful Ciceronian Latin. And he'd been encouraged to make a new translation of the scriptures into this beautiful form of Latin to be used as a textbook for boys at school. 
boys, you know, just because girls didn't go to school in those days. The boys at school had to that point been um, educated in Latin by reading bits of Ovid and Catullus and Virgil and so on, which is, you know, full of sex and violence. It seems to have been the case that people in the 16th century hadn't clocked the fact that the Bible is even more full of sex and violence. But they wanted to have a, a nice purified form of the Bible as a textbook. And so Sebastian Castellio was busy providing it. And when he saw what Calvin had done, that Calvin had killed somebody who disagreed with him in a matter of theology, he wrote him a letter, a letter which formed the basis of a book which was published and disseminated all around Europe in which Castellio challenged Calvin with the following question. He said to him, you claim the right to think for yourself in matters of religion. How can you? How can you kill somebody for disagreeing with you? Don't you see the terrible contradiction that underlies the idea that you, having chosen the freedom to think about these matters as you do, should deny it to anybody else? That challenge, that question to Calvin was, again, like another spark to yet more tinder in Europe because it made people think, especially in the Protestant parts of Europe, that nobody had the right to tell them what to think in these matters. But additionally, it gave impetus to the idea that people were free not just in that respect, but free to inquire, to ask questions, to explore nature in ways that until that time, for literally centuries, they had been forbidden to do by the presence of an overpowering authority over their minds. So in the Protestant parts of Europe, what happened? Well, what happened was a sudden ebullition of interest in magic and alchemy and astrology and hermeticism and the Kabbalah. People were thinking, oh, I can really get on now and see if I can't change base metals into gold and live forever and have eternal youth. And go back to, them, to these uh, sources like the hermetic uh, um, uh, writings of, of ancient times. And there was this great outburst, this great flowering of interest in these matters. Because, of course, in the Protestant countries, there was no authority that could stop them from doing it. And some of the people who did it, like, for example, Dr. John Dee in England, became famous across Europe as magicians as being able in their alchemical works to transmute metals into gold. And by the way, the thinking that lay behind some of this was actually of a genuine scientific interest, as you'll see in a moment, because you take the idea that uh, physical things are made up out of minute particles, of elements. Well, what if you could rearrange those elements, if you could break things down to their constituent parts and rearrange them into the configuration uh, which gives you gold. Well, that would be jolly useful, wouldn't it? You could take an old shoe and turn it into gold, or you could take just about anything and turn it into gold. That would be very, very useful indeed. And of course, people thought gold was obviously by far the nicest stuff to have around, and it therefore must be a very potent medicine as well. And people took gold as a medicine. They ate it. As you know, gold is edible, but in very, very large quantities, it proves to be a complete insurance against any future illnesses of any kind. <laughs> so they weren't wrong about that. So all this work was going on, alchemy, and of course, the, uh, people were gazing at the heavens and seeing uh, supernovae. There, were, uh, there was a supernova uh, spotted in the later 16th century. There were comets. And of course, they were interesting because they were thought to be portents of great political and social changes uh, or perhaps at the end of time or the return of the Messiah. But these observations, as 
with the observations that have been made of the heavens for many, many centuries, indeed several millennia, all the way back to Babylon, these observations, provided some of the more serious-minded among those who gazed at the heavens, with indications that the old orthodox way of thinking about these things weren't perhaps quite right. So in this great outburst of interest in alchemy and magic and astrology, there were some people who began to notice that bits of these things would, if properly and in a very careful way pursued with the right kind of method, they might lead us to genuine knowledge. And what we should do is try to shrive those parts of the bits that were merely nonsensical or founded on superstition. And indeed, one of the key things in the early 17th century was that two great minds focused their attention on the question of right method, of how you could, out of these explorations, perhaps retrieve something of very serious scientific value. And the two people in question were Descartes and Francis Bacon. The very first book that Descartes published is called A Discourse on Method, on how you conduct inquiry, beginning with very, very clearly defined, very simple ideas, going by small, careful, clear steps to the next stage, reviewing everything that you do, imposing the most rigorous logic on what you think. Francis Bacon argued repeatedly in a number of, of, uh, of his uh, books and publications for what he called a house of Solomon, a house of wisdom, in which people who were doing uh, th this kind of work could come together and share their results and uh, um, learn from one another and teach one another and criticize one another and subject to experimentation what people were claiming. Now, the point was to try to separate out chemistry from alchemy, astronomy from astrology, medicine from magic. Try to separate out the useful bits, but to do it by means of a, an intellectually responsible approach to inquiry into these matters. This was the great ambition that Descartes and uh, um, Bacon had. And in fact, Bacon's arguments for um, what he called a House of Solomon, for the sharing of knowledge, for science as a a joint enterprise, was so powerful and persuasive that by the end of the 17th century, a great number of, of scientific societies had come into being, not least among them, of course, the Royal Society of London, which received its charter, Royal Charter, in 1662, and they cite in their documents of founding the influence of Bacon on their thinking. The Kabbalists and the magicians and the uh, astrologists and so on had been keeping their secrets to themselves. After all, if I'm an alchemist and I, found the, I find the way of cre creating gold out of nothing, I'm not going to tell you guys because I don't want you all to be doing it and the price of gold drops and I won't be as rich as I, as I would like to be. So they were keeping their secrets to themselves and Bacon was saying that is a barrier to the advance of knowledge. And so the argument, and it was a very important argument, carried the day about the sharing, the pooling of knowledge, and the mutual testing and criticizing of ideas. But how did these ideas get around? How did people do that in the early part of the 17th century? How did people communicate the results of their work? How did they criticize and challenge one another to help one another with the progress of their work? Well, the answer is the postal service. Now this, 
of all the things in this book you might think really is the one that would help with your insomnia, but actually it turns out to be the most fascinating story too. Because there were a number of individuals in Europe, Marin Mersen in Paris, Samuel Hartlib in London, and others, who acted as, as kind of internet servers of the 17th century, in the sense that people would write to them with their ideas and their experiments. They would make multiple copies of these letters and send them out to all sorts of other people. So they were hubs from which these ideas spread out. And people began to get to know of one another and what other people were doing, got in contact with them. But not only that, how did these letters manage to get around Europe when prior to this time, at any rate, there'd been such rigorous censorship, such very, very strict controls on what people were able to write to another or send to one another around Europe? Well, the answer is the war. The war broke down the barriers, broke down controls, emptied the guardhouses uh, on the borders between countries, and made it impossible to censor the communications going around Europe. And not only letters, but people. People were going either as soldiers or as accompaniers uh, uh, to armies and traveling around Europe. And there were no passport controls to stop them doing it. So the exchange of ideas by letter and in person was one of the great potentiators of the debate in the 17th century that was so fertile in producing new ideas and advancing knowledge. It was one of the, the silver linings of a, an otherwise very destructive time that it freed up the movement of people and of, of theories in a way that had not been possible before because of the very strict controls that had been exercised over these things. Now, the Thirty Years' War was, was uh, particularly important in this respect because it was so devastating and because there was such an anarchy, such chaos across Europe that this was able to happen. And so it's of significance to notice that uh, at the very beginning of the Thirty Years' War, in 1618, the reasons why it happened. What happened was that almost for the first time in the thousand years in which Christendom had uh, existed in the form that uh, the Reformation attacked, that the, the people of, a, of a, a place, Bohemia, Moravia, part of the Holy Roman Empire, but having converted to Protestantism in the preceding century, decided that they didn't want to have a Catholic as their monarch. And so they, they fired Ferdinand II, the Holy Roman Emperor, and they invited a Protestant to come and be their king. They invited Frederick of the Palatine. Made a bit of a mistake there. He was the wrong kind of Protestant for a start. Uh, he brought a whole lot of Germans with him, and the Czechs didn't like that at all. So the whole thing was a disaster. And in any case, the Emperor Ferdinand wasn't at all happy about his bohemian subjects uh, trying to break away from him. You may remember that he sent a couple of ambassadors to Bohemia to tell them to behave themselves there. And the Bohemians threw these ambassadors out of a window in Prague Castle. This is the famous defenestration of Prague. The two ambassadors fell into a rubbish dump about 30 feet below the windows. Their pride was much more bruised than their limbs. But of course, the really serious thing was the act of les majeste against the emperor. That's why he ordered Duke Maximilian of Bavaria to get together an army and go to Bohemia and to beat them, which he did at the Battle of the White Mountain. And then the most terrible atrocities at the, at the point of a sword and a lance forced the populations of Bohemia and Moravia to reconvert to Catholicism. And there were tremendous massacres and burnings of towns and villages and so on to effect it. 
One little detail is that uh, when the ambassadors were thrown out of the window of the castle, a Catholic propaganda put it about that they'd been caught by angels and lowered into the rubbish dump. <laughs> Which I've always found a very curious detail, because if you're going to be caught by an angel, why be lowered into a rubbish dump? You would, <laughs> you would expect them to at least have been lo lowered onto a neighbouring lawn. At any rate, the war had begun, and it was very, very devastating, and in many ways, an horrific event. But as I say, it had these silver linings, one of which was the opening up of possibility for exchange of people and ideas. Another is that, alas, all wars put history into fast-forward mode. Just think of a more familiar example. Take, for example, the Second World War. In 1939, the Royal Air Force uh, in Britain, of course, it had its Mark I Spitfires and Hurricanes, but it was still flying Gloucester Gladiator biplanes. In 1945, it was already flying the Whittle jet fighter. In the social arena, the changes wrought by the Second World War were tremendous. Think of society in the 1930s, think of society in the 1940s and 50s after the election of a large majority Labour government. Well, these changes were brought about by the fact that history really goes into, into fast-forward mode, and it did in the 17th century. One of the reasons why the view of the universe, what people thought about kingship, and what people thought about the nature of scientific inquiry and its permissibility, was so different in the second part of the 17th century as against the first, is because of this speeding up of time, speeding up of change, and in some respects, speeding up of progress. I pointed out to you that uh, um, people like uh, Bruno and Vanini and um, Galileo were persecuted by the church in the early decades of the 17th century. In the year 1686, a Frenchman by the name of Bernard Le Beauvry de Fontenelle was able to publish a book called On the Plurality of Worlds, in which he says, all the stars are suns, all the suns have worlds revolving around them. There must be people everywhere in the universe and right throughout the night sky, we will be seeing other centers of life. And he could publish a book like that without any fear whatever of arrest and, and prosecution, without any fear of losing his life because he had avowed this view. And when you compare what he could do in the 1680s with what Bruno and Vanini could not do at the beginning of the century, you see just how revolutionary that century was. Now, I'm going to end on this point. What you witness in these changes, and I've just indicated a few of them, really, because there's much more to be said about the way the century works, not least in thinking about politics and society, about religion itself, dramatic changes. But what you see here is, as it were, a kind of dog's leg in the history of the human mind. For all of human history beforehand, with very, very few exceptions, you can go back to classical antiquity and you can look at the thinking of people like Anaxagoras and Aristarchus of Samos, who thought that the sun might be at the center of the universe because they noticed the phases of the moon and Venus and so on. But their views were the views of one or two isolated thinkers. For all of human history, the empirical data tells us we stand on a stable earth and uh, everything moves east to west uh, around us, sun, the moon, the stars, um, and that we therefore are at the center of this uh, extraordinary mechanism. And that's what people thought right up to the beginning of the 17th century. By the end of that century, 
the universe had undergone the most radical transformation in the view of the human mind. Now, I say the view of the human mind, and I've been talking about Europe, and you might think, hello, what was going on in India and China and among the Aztecs and so on? How were they part of this story? Well, here's the thing. Europe at that point was globalizing through trade and the beginnings of colonization. Europe was taking its ideas, its religion, but also these other thoughts across the entire globe. So that although it is the case that today there are still people who think as our forebears did before the 17th century, plenty of people who still have a medieval mindset. There are people, creationists, who think the world was created uh, 6,000 years ago. And there are people who think that the earth is flat and so on to this day, yes. But whereas that way of thinking until the 17th century had been functionally the dominant way of thinking, allowing some people to kill other people for disagreeing, today that way of thinking is functionally marginal. And the functionally dominant way of thinking about the universe, about human beings, about society, about our planet, is the view that was forged in the new thinking of the 17th century. That is the functionally dominant way of thinking. Computers and aeroplanes and modern medicine and construction techniques, absolutely everything that we think of as characteristic of a world that has arisen out of the foundations of scientific thinking is the legacy of the 17th century. And that is why I think it is the moment in our history when things changed. So here is the final, final point, because I'm beginning to run out of time. It says naught seconds there that I've got left. So I'm going to have to talk fast. Well, we are always in danger, always in danger of being presented with, um, you know, terrible events that turn the clocks back on us. Only think back to the difference between the fourth century of the Common Era and, let us say, the seventh century. If you lived in London in, say, the year 350, you would live in a modern, advanced, highly sophisticated city with sewerage and hot water in the public baths and beautiful buildings. Two or three centuries later, all that lay in ruins. People were living in thatched cottages outside the walls. Things can go back very badly. Things can go back very badly today if we allow the modern mind to be closed by religious fundamentalism or political populism. What we have to do if we value the way that we came to see the universe and on that basis created the world that we think of now, created the enlightenment of the 18th century, conceptions of rules of law, of greater equality between individuals, of institutions which give us, all of us, a possibility of participating in the government of our lives. If we see the change which has happened in the last 400 years in the following light, that 400 years ago, the only people who had what we have, the opportunity to travel and to live a life of, of, uh, of choice, were the most wealthy aristocrats and clerics, then we see how much progress has been made. People sometimes ask me, is there any other time in history you'd like to live in? I say, oh, I wouldn't mind the 18th century if I could take my dentist with me. But then I remember <laughs> that actually, I would not like to live anywhere other than in a Western country at any time in history other than now if I were a woman. And I think that is a mark of the fact that we have made at least some progress. Not enough by a long chalk, as every woman in this, in this room will tell you, but some progress. And that is something which in itself is the legacy of the 17th century because the 17th century change of mind made the enlightenment of the 18th century possible and it has made the rest of modern times possible. Thank you very much.
Wonderful. Thank you. Wonderful. Take a seat. Okay, we are going to take some of your questions now. I believe there's four microphones. We've only got about time for uh, four or five questions at most. If you could start assembling at uh, the microphones there and there, and three and four in the upper galleries. While you're assembling, I want to ask AC Grayling a, a couple of questions. Two images uh, leap out at me from your book. Well, one certainly does, and it illustrates the point that you made about how we can slip back. 1688, the glorious revolution, and the parliament places the crown on the head of William of Orange. And then I think it was a hundred or more years later, not in your book, but we have the image of Napoleon placing the crown on his own head. I mean, what do those two images, I mean, to you say about the sort of enduring value of uh, the debates and the discussions and the ideas that grew out of the 17th century? Well, principally, it says to me something about French exceptionalism, because uh, uh, Louis XIV certainly um, is, is a kind of throwback against mm. the general trend of the 17th century, because uh, very irritated indeed by the experiences he had in the Fronde of 1648, he as asserted the concept of, of absolute, reasserted the concept of absolute monarchy, um, although th that actually, I think, in the end, had the long-term consequence of the French Revolution itself. Uh, had the French Revolution succeeded uh, uh, on its first terms, that is, the idea of equality and fraternity and the rest, if the rest of the monarchical powers of Europe not ganged up to try to re-establish so-called legitimacy in, in France, they might not have needed, we might not have needed a Napoleon or we might not have needed Napoleon to act as he did. Mm. But Napoleon put the crown on his own head because the other monarchs wouldn't treat with him. They wouldn't mm. deal with him because he was just a, a corporal with a mm. marshal's baton on his back. Um, so he said, okay, well, if you only talk to a, a monarch, I'll make myself an emperor. <laughs> you know, <it's> up yours. <laughs> but there's something, though, about the image, as I said, of the glorious revolution. I mean, what did... What values did the glorious revolution introduce that endure today? Well, th that actually was a very important moment because the, the so-called glorious revolution was uh, kicking out James II, inviting William of Orange and uh, James's daughter Mary to come and be joint monarchs in, in uh, um, Britain. And on the basis that it was Parliament, not God, <laughs> who was appointing the, the, uh, the king and restricting the powers of the king. So raising an army, going to war, raising taxes and so on. These were things that were going to be limited by the need to have parliamentary agreement to them. And this, this is very, very significant because you have to remember that just at this point, at the same point at which the English parliament was doing this, England was becoming the world superpower over the next two centuries, exporting these ideas about uh, uh, parliamentary ways of doing things, exporting its other institutions, cricket and one or two other things, and uh, just generally, of course, thinking that it was um, making a vast improvement. Uh, not, not always the case, but in some respects, those ideas have become lodged in our thinking about the nature of governance, uh, at least in those parts of the world that we're influenced by it. Mm. And there's something, what, uh, there's a certain, you talk about French exceptionalism, but there is something about the the, the genius of the English ability to compromise, bit by bit compromise. Now, the full franchise wasn't achieved until uh, really the 1920s, mm -hmm. or early 1930s, mm -hmm. but bit by bit, 
the British compromised with the Corn Laws and the Reform Acts. Mm -hmm. this, this all began uh, in, the 16th, in the 17th century, this, this notion that we hold power, that we retain order by giving a bit away every yes. now and then. Indeed, indeed. If you look at what happened in uh, the run-up to the 1832 Reform Act in England, the first genuine extension of the franchise, there were riots, broken windows, great mobs in the streets of London, and a tiny little extension of the franchise shut them up. So it just shows you how smart ruling classes can be in eking out the... Uh, uh, you know, the sweeties just keep everybody happy and quiet for a little while. They've been jolly good at it. Um, and, of course, their great anxiety always was uh, mob rule. Mm. This, after all, was um, a legacy of Plato's. Mm. Plato didn't like the idea of democracy at all because he, 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 he just couldn't distinguish between democracy and what's called oclocracy, which means a rule by the mob. So that was... Uh, um, uh, a smart move on the part of the ruling class to hang on and hang on and hang on always until the last moment. Mm. But the important thing about the glorious revolution, of course, is that the class in society that had asserted itself against the monarchy ipso facto asserted itself against the aristocracy and the ruling class became not monarchs and aristocrats but the middle class, mm. the class of merchants and bankers and traders. Mm. We'll go to microphone two. Uh, Professor Grading, you've given us or taken us on a very full journey of the opening of the human mind and given us, despite the title of today's talk, just a glimpse of the dangers that might occur if it's closed. So I, I want to ask you to just expand on that a bit more, but I also want you to ask to consider what we can expect to find to be the nature of the postmodern mind? Well, uh, thank you very much indeed for that question. I was uh, hoping for it and waiting for it <laughs> so that we could, we could address this, this particular point. But as I hinted at the very last minute there, uh, hastening to the end, that if we, were to, um, if we were to look at the obverse of which the reverse of this coin uh, is, as represented by what happened in the 17th century. That is the repudiation in the 17th century of um, the, the hegemony over what is, it is permissible to think and to inquire into. If we get a reassertion of orthodoxy, of people saying, you must believe this, you must think that, you're not allowed to ask these sorts of questions, you're not allowed to investigate into that subject matter, then we will go back to the pre-modern mindset and way of thinking about things. Everywhere in the southern states of the United States of America, in parts of the Middle East and West Asia, there are people who want other people to stop thinking and stop asking questions, but just to believe and to obey. Now, the great Immanuel Kant in the 18th century wrote an essay called What is Enlightenment? The, the very name given to that 18th century movement that grew out of the 17th century comes from that essay. And in it, he said, the key to an era of, of the enlightening of the mind, of the opening of the mind, is the freedom to think, the uh, courage to challenge and to ask questions. The minute that you begin closing down, that enterprise is in danger. Now, I've pointed, out, uh, pointed at uh, religious fundamentalisms and orthodoxies as the, as the principal historical danger, but there are others. What about 
safe spaces、mm. for not thinking about challenging ideas? What about the need for trigger warnings so people can run away if you're going to discuss something that might be uncomfortable or which disagrees with them? What about the idea that、uh, we must tread with such care on all the eggshells of all the sensitivities and possibilities for affront that we're no longer able to talk openly or even indeed to probe and, and to inquire? That would be another form of the closing of the modern mind. And all these things have to be resisted. And they have to be resisted by saying to people firstly, there is a tremendous value in the freedom of thought and the freedom of expression. But there is also a, a, an important duty. A duty, if you are going to accept free speech and free inquiry, to accept that there are going to be people who are going to say bad things and want to do bad things. And the way to deal with that is not to shut them up. But to use better free speech against them is to challenge them and to argue with them and to stand up against them. Something which is not always easy to do. You know, m- most of us、um, would rather、uh, live peaceful lives than have scraps with people. But you meet somebody, a racist, a sexist, or somebody who wants to、uh, um, threaten your life because you don't share their view of the world, you've got to stand up to them because that is the only way we're going to keep the mind of humanity open.、Uh, this is.、Yes. There's a gentleman at、uh, microphone four, but this is the illiberalism of parts of the modern liberal class, though, isn't it, that you're talking about?、Uh, Timothy Garton Ash has spoken about it. I think Alan Bloom wrote about it 25 years ago.、Um, you, you really see this as a threat comparable to that of, uh, of uh, religious uh, dogmatists 300 years ago. Well, in the following sense, that、uh, the, the great contradiction that lies at the heart of the small l liberal outlook,、mm. um, which is to be tolerant and accepting and to encourage people to put forward their points of view, is that、uh, you tolerate the intolerant inadvertently. So you have this liberal dispensation, and in the midst of it, you've allowed people to come up with、uh, ideas that, if those ideas became dominant, would shut you up forever. So、um, there is a point. You know, it's, it's a bit like saying you've got to have an open mind, but not so open that your brains fall out. You've got to have a, a line somewhere in the sand. You've got to have some standards, and you've got to be prepared to make a case against people who make a case you think is wrong.、Uh, okay,、uh, microphone four. We've got time for one last question. Thank you for that presentation. I was just、uh, thinking about your points about how Protestantism became the.、Um, Kind of the beginning of free thought or modern free thought, and I was wondering how did how did Protestantism change? It doesn't seem very open to free thought today.、Um, no. Did it did it go backwards, or perhaps has it stayed the same? But maybe it didn't go far enough in promoting free thought. No, it didn't go backwards. It's always been back there.、Uh, but as you look at the Puritans. <laughs> In the、uh, 1640s, managed to close the theatres of London. Imagine that closing the theatres of London so soon after the age of Shakespeare and Ben Jonson.、Um, no, no, it, it was it, it was the weakness of the Protestant communions that allowed thought uh, to uh, flower up. Not not because that they they were promoting it. They didn't like it any more than anybody else did. But they they weren't able to do anything about it. So it was a、um, you know an important accidental by、uh, blow of the fact that they they'd、uh, um, come up. But、um, the, the I think a, a really important point to make about uh, uh, Protestantism is that it it, it is so internally、um, prone to fragmentation that it will. 
almost always be weak unless there, there is some, in some local area, some genuine unity of thought among it. This is why when people look at the history of, of um, persecutions of witches in the 17th century, there were a tremendous number of them in the early part of the 17th century because wherever the Catholic forces of the Holy Roman Empire recaptured a part of Protestant Europe, they, they arrested and burned many people there as witches because, of course, they thought Protestantism was the work of the devil. In Salem, in the late 17th century, in New England, where Puritans were very much in control, they did the same thing. Everywhere that a religion gets into a dominant position, it will do this. I just want to remind you, in the year 313 AD, Constantine decriminalized Christianity, which until that point, of course, had been regarded as a form of atheism because the Christians wouldn't get together with the rest of the citizens of the Roman Empire to worship the emperor and Jupiter and so on. And so the kind of, of uh, Christian literature that was written at that time is called apologetical literature, that is, trying to persuade people of the truths of the faith. By the 11th, 12th, 13th, 14th centuries of the Common Era, there was no longer any need for apologetics, for persuasion, because by that time, it was a criminal offense not to believe the doctrines of the church, and you would be burned at the stake if you did. As a result of the 17th century, apologetics came back into the picture. William Paley's mm. famous book, The Evidences of Christianity, was since you couldn't burn uh, people uh, like me at the, at the stake, you had to try and persuade us. Not that it would work, but they tried it anyway. They come back into the picture with that. And this is the sort of arch uh, of, um, of the, the progress and regress of religious dominance over human minds, broken at the apex of the arch by what happened in the 17th century. Read more about it in the Age of Genius. Um, A.C. Grayling, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. If you enjoyed that talk, please subscribe to our iTunes channel for our fortnightly podcast.